Hi everybody, um, we are adding a bit of extra introduction. Um, in this podcast, we're going to talk to Anne Scheel. Um, and we had a interesting conversation with Anne. Um, it actually got a bit uh, testy at, at times. <laughs> uh, we okay. So to add a bit of extra context, um, Spriti and I were kind of mid-argument uh, when we started this podcast and at certain right. points in the pod that have kind of been edited out uh, and actually had to kind of step bet- between us and kind of bra- break us up. Break I mean, Smriti, yeah. I mean, you basically told me uh, I was a bad scientist <laughs> before we started. Re- <laughs> no, I guess you, you kind of did. Reading between the lines, you kind of did. And we, well, we, we have sort of had subsequent discussions and stuff like that. But I guess I just wanted to sort of explain to listeners why I was maybe a bit combative and de- yeah, defensive yeah. So during I think this. We had started arguing before, like we had some disagreements before Anne came on when mm-hmm. we had started recording. And so we were already between that. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I, I wasn't trying to say that you're a bad scientist, mm-hmm. but I think I was just a little frustrated because mm-hmm. like I told you just a little bit earlier, right? I think you like like want the stats and like the quanti- like the quantitative part to be really rigor- rigorous when you look at research but i don't think you apply that same kind of lens when you're looking at theory or theory development or like conceptual parts of the of research and i that sort of frustrates me a little sometimes mm. yeah and i would yeah i mean i would just say like I think I am quite rigorous in my my own research. Like I, I actually, yeah, like I was research, telling, like with, with when there's actually research that I've done where I've kind of decided to sort of step away from that research right. area because I and that was through thinking through the derivation chain and thinking about is, oh, it, is it possible to join but what all I mean these dots? Is when we're looking at other research, looking at, right, to, right? Yeah, you, yeah. you. It almost to me seems like you're saying, oh well, right. but all that theory part, but well, that's you, just people telling stories mm. to each other. So who cares? But you did say. Nobody at Berkeley is thinking carefully about their research. And I am at well, Berkeley. That was, so this, well, that was an overstatement. Yeah. I, I apologize. Yeah, well, um, I apologize too, because like, yeah, but I just, anyway, we should wrap this up and get to the podcast. I yeah. just wanted to give listeners this extra context to tr- try to influence you not to kind of see me <laughs> as a sexist jerk. Um, yeah. But I will for, say, I think this is, you know, I, d- I didn't expect any, all the conversations that we have with people to be, you know, smooth and flowery, yeah. right? I think yeah. it's fine that we are disagreeing and we're, mm. you know, not, n- there's some tension yeah. in and some conversations. I think that's fine. Also, in some ways, this intro might not even make sense because we have heavily edited <laughs> the content of the podcast. So you might actually just listen to it and think, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Right. But uh, yeah, like it did, trust me, it did get kind of heated at certain points. Yeah. But I'm glad we did it nonetheless. So, you know, Um, enjoy. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Smriti Mehta, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Paul Connor. Hey, Smriti. How's it going? Hey, Paul. It's going well. You know, we're recording Brighton early again today, and that's because we're being joined by a very special guest. I feel like our guests keep getting more, more and more special. We have our first grad student, like a fellow grad student coming in, so I'm really excited about that. 
We're joined by um, Ann Scheel, who is a doctoral candidate at the Eindhoven University of Technology, um, was originally into uh, developmental research, but is now really into meta science and works with Daniel Loggins. Um, and Ann, I don't know if you remember this, but we've met in person. So I'm so excited to tell this story because last year was the first time I went to a conference and as a graduate student um, or at all, and it was the SIPS conference in Rotterdam. And you gave the um, closing remarks for that talk. And I remember throughout the whole conference, I felt very like, couldn't relate to people and felt like I was totally out of place. But then I heard your talk and it was the only one that I thought like, oh yeah, I, you know, th this seems like the stuff that really sort of made me feel like why I thought like open science was a way to go. Like I thought your talk was very inspiring and I, you were the only person that I walked up to and was like, that was great. Like that was really inspiring. So I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Wow, thank you. Uh, that is that is a very um, impressive intro. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, first, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I'm super happy to be here. And I didn't know this anecdote. Now that you say, it, I do remember uh, this incident. I didn't like. I didn't make the connection with you actually until now. I'm really, I'm really sorry. I like, oh no, I didn't, totally I didn't expected that. Anything. Yeah, but I like I like I remember uh, you coming up and uh, and saying this, and I was really moved by it. And I mean, now I'm even more moved. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was a great, it was a great, great um, closing, great closing remarks. Yeah, yeah, but that is so lovely to hear. I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. about um, you guys, but if I ever give a talk, at least like 20 minutes after the talk, I'm just in this like intense state of just like analyzing how it went and <laughs> what I said and what I could have done better. So like often if somebody talks to me directly after a talk, I'll forget them too. <laughs> I mean, with this one, it was, I was, I was on, one, on the one hand, I was completely out of it because I was so nervous. Yeah. Like I have right. never done anything like this before. Like if the, I mean, just being asked to give the closing the speech at SIPS was and and I was I was oh my god but it was so nice like I remember this afterwards how people reacted yeah yeah you did a great job yeah so great so we're really glad to have you and yeah Paul do you want to introduce what we're going to talk about today yeah yeah so um we invited Anne on um to talk about a new paper uh that is coming out in perspectives in on psychological science I believe yeah mm -hmm. And the paper is called Why Hypothesis Testers Should Spend Less Time Testing Hypotheses. Um, there was a lot of discussion about this a few weeks ago on Twitter. Uh, it was just one of those things that you sort of see, comes on your Twitter timeline, and, or your feed rather, and um, you just think, ah, oh, that sounds really interesting. I should read that. And now I have the impulse of, I should not just read that. I should invite that person on my podcast to talk about that. So we did. Uh, and then Smriti and I have procrastinated and we haven't really read the paper until yesterday, but we both have read the paper now. Um, I thought it was really good. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. I have a lot of questions. But first of all, I think give us the background. Give us the main message of the paper. Why do you think hypothesis testers should spend less time testing hypotheses? Uh, all right. Yeah. So um, I think so. Why we think they should spend less time testing hypotheses is because we think they should um, often be doing some other things first. Um, and so the main um, point of the paper is that uh, over the last years, um, 
in the reform movement following the replication crisis, we've been very focused on fixing hypothesis testing, I think. So, for example, um, I think pre-registration is the best case for that, right? The, the very explicit idea of that was to um, distinguish, to, to sort of put a barrier between uh, confirmatory tests and exploratory tests to sort of safeguard the um, confirmatory hypothesis tests from anything that could sort of uh, invalidate the results that we get and to make sure that we have uh, proper error control um, and all these things. And then we've had discussions about uh, about having good statistical power. Um, now, also, the work I've done with Daniel was about um, using, for example, equivalence testing if you um, are interested in... Um, in Finding a null, like if if you want to, um, if your hypothesis is, for example, about whether there's no difference, um, or as a complement to um, hypothesis about there being a difference. So um, basically, everything was sort of predicated on this thing that we're testing hypotheses, right? And then like keep the hypothesis test like as um, proper and sound as possible, and don't inflate your rates. Um, and in my own research, in my own PhD, that is basically about um, um, yeah, reproducibility and how um, the reforms that we've put into place, like registered reports, for example, the effects that they actually have, that's what I'm interested in in my own research. I started with this sort of implicit model that, yeah, every, like we're all doing hypothesis tests and now we just have to check how well we do them, basically, and see if some things to improve them can actually improve them. And as I've done this work and started to look at how what papers actually look like and try to code hypotheses in papers, for example, I start to realize that that's way more difficult than I thought. And that, for example, that there often is a huge gap between a verbal hypothesis that's stated in a paper and then the statistical test in the paper. And it's really difficult to link them. And it's so difficult to link them that I was, I started, I was almost feeling gaslit sort of like I was what is happening here like this is so weird why is like what is what is going on like what is this paper what does it even mean like what does any of this mean um and um I started to think more and more about this and I started to to think that maybe we're not really ready to test hypothesis a lot of the time so basically and I think We've had discussions about this for a very long time. I mean, even Paul Meal has been talking about this, that hypotheses in psychology are quite vague and underspecified, for example. Um, and so then if you go and test them, you will just pick some operationalization, right? You will do something, and it's unclear how that's linked to the actual hypothesis. Um, and so um, maybe if, if you're at that stage where your hypothesis is really vague and whatever you would then specify in a pre-registration, and now with um, the, uh, the reform movement wants you to be really specific about everything, right? And hammer everything down. You write your pre-registration and you say exactly the, the sample size is the exact statistical test and you simulate power for that test and all these things. And it's like completely fail-safe. But very often people will feel... I don't know what to fill in here. I don't yet know. Like, I don't know how, how, what the variance will be. I don't, I don't know, like, how much dropout I will have. I don't know if the statistical analysis will be appropriate. And, I, like, and it feels weird to put, like, it feels arbitrary, right? And so what, what we thought, we thought that that might just be a sign that um, you haven't, you're not at the stage where you really want to test that prediction yet. Because the prediction is not testable yet. And so rather than making it testable arbitrarily, 
so you you know you put yourself um uh in um like you you basically make all these specifications even though they don't really mean anything like you just fill in a number so that there's a concrete number on the paper but not because you really mean that number like you really want that exact like this is exactly the effect size you're predicting or something like that um if you just do that as a as an exercise then it's sort of pointless because the result you will get from the statistical test will also be arbitrary and so maybe what you need to do is to um be more become more specific and understand what your hypothesis actually is and work your way towards having a meaningful precise test and so uh one way to to think about that is uh, to conceptualize that we mentioned in the paper is um Paul Meal's idea of a derivation chain so um uh basically this this is all predicated on the idea that hypothesis testing is um what we call a um hypothetical deductive model so we um have a theory some overarching thing and we deductively derive a hypothesis or prediction so we say this theory predicts that this should happen so that's a deductive step it's pure logic basically ideally and then um you put it to the test you collect the data and you test if this prediction holds right that's sort of the the um well a bit of an uh, of an inductive step at that case at that point but it's sort of a an a falsification attempt um and this derivation chain that gets you from the theory to this thing that you actually test the the degree to which that is sound that that's like really a logical derivation that determines how far back your inference goes from the test so you have your prediction you've tested it and now what does that mean for the theory that's basically the idea right um and that is also that only means a lot for the theory if there's a tight link between the theory and the prediction that you tested or the the thing you actually tested um and so we think that's a that's a useful way of thinking about it to to make sure that you have a sound derivation chain and the derivation chain contains so many things it contains all the auxiliaries and operationalizations everything like all the measures that you use the manipulations that you use are they do they really reflect the concepts that you're interested in um you know how does it really work out the way you thought when in the lab or on on mturk or whatever uh you know do people understand your instructions like all these little things any one of them could be a breaking point right for your inference like if something goes wrong you might get a result that doesn't mean what you think it means um and if you have all this lined up like if you have done all the research where you know um okay wait sorry before before you go there so i what we think um so basically we say we need to work on this derivation chain to have this like figured out to have a good meaningful test at the end um and if you don't if you can't specify the test yet maybe that tells you you need to do more work early on you're not ready to do the test so stop don't don't just try to do an arbitrary test okay so what is what are the things that you do need that are sort of in between um and we have come up with a few things that are you know also not like hard and fast like this is one way of conceptualizing it um we um we base our categories on um book by um Robert Dubin I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his uh, last name uh, I hope that's roughly correct um um so we have we said like first you need concepts right you need to know um what are the things that you want to measure or or manipulate um so for example uh, yeah random example uh, screen time is bad for teenagers uh, mental health or something you would need to know what a screen time 
what is mental health and what is good <laughs> or bad like how you know how what what are these things or what is a teenager even that's probably a very easy concept but you still need to know like what it is you need, still need to define it um then you need measurement so you have the concepts and now you need to know like how do we operationalize it? how do we measure them how do we put numbers on them or how do we manipulate the things And that is very closely linked to the concepts, of course. Like the two are very, like sometimes the measure sort of defines the concept. Um, then you need to know how your concepts are supposed to relate to each other. So the, the causal structure, uh, basically. And that's really important because um, I think we, we, this is one point we tend to overlook and it's much more important than people realize. I think at least it's more important than I used to realize. Uh, so, for example, um, it can turn out that if you really sit down and think about it and try to formalize your causal network, that actually the two things that you were interested in, um, that even if you're, the way that you think they are related is true, that the um, sort of empirical results you would get are not what you think because there are other variables that uh, influence them in some way. And for example, you're conditioning on a collider or something, and then that might actually flip the correlation and stuff like that could happen, you know. And if you're not clear about that and you're sort of just naively going about this and basically you haven't fleshed out your own assumptions, right, they're not formalized, um, then that could mean that what you end up testing is just not, yeah. So yeah. just we do have like some people who listen to this who might not know what a collider is, like... Could you like quickly explain that concept? Uh, yes, I, I also didn't used to know what a collider is, um, but I'm friends with uh, Julia Rora, who's very good at explaining what a what a collider is. <laughs> um, so, like, I'm also not the the best person to ask. But basically, um, basically, the the gist of it is that if you sort of um, condition on on a collider, which is one that is, I think, uh, related. Um, to the variables in a specific way, um, then you can get uh, yeah, like a completely different correlation within the subset mm -hmm. of the whole data set yeah. or the whole population. Yeah, like so like if SAT scores help you get into university, but conscientiousness also helps you get into university, and we just look at university students, then those students with low SAT scores in university are likely to be very high in conscientiousness. So this can reduce the correlation yeah, between uh, SAT scores and academic performance if we just look at those those students. Yeah, because, because that we, sample we, excludes like anybody that's low on conscientiousness on low on and low on exactly. both, yeah, on SAT yeah. scores. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. You're, you're much better at explaining it. Um, so, anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's a cool thing. Like, it's a third, in really interesting third variable, and I hadn't heard yes. about it until second or third year of grad school as well, which is is kind of surprising because yeah. you see collider bias everywhere. I mean, MTurk yeah. samples, student samples. There's all sorts of all sorts of variables that affect if you become a university student or if you become an MTurk worker, yeah. right? So, like, yeah, we yeah. need to think about it a lot more. Anyway, right. <laughs> Yeah, but like the thing is that, so I also wasn't aware of that at all for a very, very long time. And I, it was kind of random that I was made aware of it. And it's not, it's not just colliders that just like all sorts of ways in which different variables sort of influence each other. And if we don't think about it, like if we don't like formalize it and see like what is actually the, the causal network or the causal structure that even, you know, that's even entailed now hypothesis. That's the interesting part. You know, it's just, 
you putting stuff, you formalizing stuff on paper so you actually know what you mean, you yourself, <laughs> rather than just implicitly, you know, having some sort of verbal version of it where it's not clear what that actually entails causally, right? So we can't even actually test it. You think you can, but you might be wrong. Like there might be really difficult, uh, really important problems with it. Um, and so, so that's a part of it, basically, the relationships between concepts. Um, another aspect of this is actually, I have to say that we in our own paper, I think some of our con our own concepts aren't perfectly um, <laughs> worked out. I have to admit, it's, the paper's not perfect. Um, uh, so another aspect of this relationship between concepts is also the functional form of a relationship between two variables, for example. So in psychology, there's also something where we tend to be quite think naive about it and assume, for example, linear relationships and not consider other forms of fun other functional forms, even though um, that can be very interesting in and of itself, right? The shape of a, of a um, uh, functional shape can in and of itself have like really interesting information in it. And it might also affect how we can actually test this or measure this. Um, so that's another thing. And then um, we, the last categories that we have is uh, boundary conditions uh, and auxiliary assumptions. Um, so this is basically where does your um, hypothesis or your predictions, where do they apply? Like what are the, the, the general, um, sort of the general framework? Uh, and this is, I think, especially um, important when we think about the, uh, all of these replication debates in the last years when we have a failure to replicate and then people start to argue about uh, how the replication was conducted and potential hidden moderators, or does it actually work in this context? And can we actually test this in this population? And can you really use these stimuli? And um, all of these can be legitimate discussions. It's just interesting that that was never specified in the first place, apparently. So it's not clear that the replicators, for example, used the wrong operationalization because the original study never said it was important, right? So we don't know what the boundary conditions are, like where, where is it supposed to hold, if it holds. Um, and um, yeah, and auxiliary assumptions um, can be uh, all sorts of things. This is basically everything else, sort of everything else that you need to put this really to the test, right? The, the exact thing that your participants will look at or will do, uh, does that really work as intended? And um, yeah, and so we th and then basically, if you have all these things, then you can start to think about the statistical prediction to actually test empirically test your hypothesis, um, and uh, that is and that and the idea is that at that point it should be easy to do the really strict concrete pre-registration because then you like you know you know like you know what values to expect if your hypothesis is true, for example. Because you have you have knowledge about how the variables you will look at are distributed, you know what they mean, you know how to measure them, you know that um, you roughly know the dropout rates you will get because you've um, you know you've done feasibility studies and you have like this is sort of part of the auxiliaries, like you know roughly how your participants will perceive your your stimuli and stuff like that. Um, and so yeah, and so we think that a lot of the time um, we should probably, yeah, like rather than press on with the hypothesis test, we might want to take a step back and try to think about, okay, what are the weak parts in our derivation chain? Like where's the, what's the area where we're really too, so vague that maybe we should spend some more time researching that. And the ways in which we can do that work 
and, f and strengthen the derivation chain um, might often be research activities that aren't taught as much as hypothesis testing. And um, that we just have, yeah, have, have worse education in and that are not as, um, that might also not be quite as straightforward as hypothesis testing, which I think is probably part of why we're not as well educated in them. Um, and so we also, like, we make a few suggestions and give some examples of um, some research activities that are not, that don't, that are not this sort of strict confirmatory research that might be really valuable to get at some of these things. Um, uh, and I think, for example, people are probably most familiar with what you can do to develop your measures, of course, to validate measures. Um, but um, there are lots of other things. So one major insight I had myself when we were writing this paper was that um, you can do um, exploratory experimentation. And to me, experiments were almost basically synonymous with hypothesis testing. Like you vary one thing to see if it has an effect. And to me, that was always about hypothesis testing. Um, but it doesn't have to be. And in fact, I mean, the word experimenting actually has like sort of a, an exploratory ring to it, actually. And some people even understand it that way. And it's not, it doesn't have, so you can systematically vary things and observe what happens, even if you have no idea of what is going to happen. You have no predictions. It's not like, oh, yeah, I predict this will happen. No, like, it's just, I wonder if this does anything, right? Like, here's one, here's, here's something, and I don't know what it does. I want to understand how it works. And so I'm starting to systematically vary this and vary that and vary this thing and then see um, if, if anything happens. So this would be like, this is just a random example of one of the, um, one of the things that, um, you know, uh, people, people can do. Um, uh, yeah, so basically, yeah, the sort of at the end of the paper, we just have a, a bunch of examples like this and, and with references and uh, also in, in other fields. Um, a lot of our input came from um, co-author uh, Leo Tiochin, who is um, a trained anthropologist. And uh, there's such cool work in, in anthropology uh, who, where I think they take these things maybe more seriously. Like they tend to do work that is a bit more uh, figuring out um, how to actually you know, conceptualize things and measure things. Um, and this is also uh, one of a, a longer example that we give at the end about um, uh, re a research program on Kamamuta, um, which is sort of a collaboration between anthropologists and psychologists. And Kamamuta is um, an emotion that is um, sort of expresses this feeling of being moved and uh, that people often experience when you, uh, for example, uh, observe um, acts of, of extraordinary kindness or something and you almost move to tears or when you're in, in a group and you experience something, experience something together. Um, this sort of, I think, um, to me, it's, it's very intuitive that I can sort of, uh, now that I've, that I've read a bit about it, that I recognize, okay, I'm feeling Kamamuta right now, I think. Um, and it's, their research program is super fascinating because they've, re, they've put so much uh, effort into getting to grips with this concept and figuring out how to measure it and done so much work, um, really uh, thoroughly intercultural uh, work from all parts of the world and in very different societies um, to see if there's a, what there's to it and what it might be indexing and um, what to do with it. And um, so a lot of their research is sort of um, showcasing some of the things that, that we think might be um, really valuable for psychologists 
where we tend to just jump to the hypothesis test and just say, you know, we have this idea. Okay, here's, let's say, okay, I, I can just give you a brief sketch of what I think Kamamuta is. And now we just assume that it exists. Uh, and we have like, we've just developed this short scale. And now we're already going to, you know, what is this? Why did this evolve? Or like, what are the functions of it? And, and make these predictions and just, you know, completely gloss over whether the concept makes sense if it really, you know, jives with people. Like if, if we can really measure it with this scale we just came up with and all, and, and all these things. Um, so, yeah, but um, most of our paper, I think, is just, Mm, we hope it's just going to be a starting point to talk about these things more. Um, and it was difficult to uh, cram everything into the word limit. And uh, I also just feel like a massive imposter writing this, uh, honestly, because. Does I'm perspectives not, have I'm a word limit? <laughs> Sorry? Does perspectives have a word limit? Um, so this is part of a, um, of a special issue that ah. is. Um, coming up on uh, theory. Um, and I'm actually really looking forward to this because I've seen some of the other um, uh, some of the other papers in there and I think it will be a really cool con collection, hopefully. Um, so this was really good because I think if it hadn't been for the special issue, this paper wouldn't exist yet, even though I've been thinking about this since like for two years or something like this and then last summer the call for the special issue came out and leo was like you should like we should write about this thing like that would be cool and i was like yeah yeah actually and then you know and then you have a deadline and then you actually get things done <laughs> um yeah and the whole writing process was just incredibly educational as well so this was really like this paper was really hard work even though it's not empirical this is probably the hardest work I've done but in a good way like just wrapping your head around something and and I hope I hope the outcome is is useful not too preliminary but yeah cool all right so um you know I I think I like ag agree with you like I you know every time I've pre-registered a study and I think a lot of people have this experience. You go to pre-register it and you realize, wait, there's all this, all this other stuff I would like to do first. There's a lot of stuff that I, I don't know here. There's a lot of, you know, um, and I mean, I published a registered report and yeah, even there, I mean, yeah, we were able to sort of define, you know, competing hypotheses and a way of testing them and, and stuff like that. Um, I mean, but the outcome, yeah, like a, like defining a smallest effect size of interest was like completely about like resource constraints. Like it was not like at all. Like, I mean, the outcome was, um, you know, you were, I'm sure you're aware of the minimal group paradigm. So um preferentially awarding like financial small financial rewards to your in-group versus your out-group um now it's very obvious why we care about in-group bias um and it's very obvious like why in-group bias might matter in society but the connection between this experimental paradigm and the outcomes that we care about in society is incredibly uh just vague and hand wavy right so yeah, like even then in the in the registered report format, it it, it did feel like ah, this is like a little undercooked, this thing, mm -hmm. and 
you know, in some ways, I think that's a, a really good outcome of pre-registration because it forces people to grapple with well, yeah. what what do I know and what what do I not know um so yeah like I I'm like nine let's 85 percent in total agreement uh the, <laughs> <laughs> um but I guess I do have some questions and I'm curious what what you'll say so I mean, one thing that stood out to me was this um, distinction between exploratory experiments and hypothesis tests. Um, so you're saying we should not do hypothesis tests, but if you want to do exploratory experiments, that's cool. <laughs> um, but I am—I don't understand totally what you mean, and I don't totally understand how we learn from an exploratory experiment or how we take away any knowledge from it without sort of implicitly testing a few sort of null hypotheses in, in the process. Do you know what I mean? Like if I, yeah. I vary a bunch of parameters and I want to know what happens, right? But just because I see like a slope, I don't know that that's what happened unless I look at the standard error and like maybe the confidence yeah. intervals. And when you start, when you're starting to look at confidence intervals and you're like, Oh, well they exclude zero. Therefore I think that <laughs> manipulating this parameter led to this result. I feel like that's pretty hypothesis yeah. testy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great point because, um, so uh, like this paper is like, there are so many points of clarification that I wish I could have, could have pressed into it or something else. Um, but I think uh, this doesn't mean you can't do inferential statistics, can't use inferential statistics. Um, so what I think is a really important point um, is that you can be, you know, you cannot have a theoretical prediction like a hypothesis, but you still want to... Um, not just want to like look at data and see how they make you feel, but you still don't want to f make sure you don't fool yourself uh, too much of too often, right? And so I think this is one thing that has been like not discussed a lot uh, enough in the um, uh, in in the reform movement and where there was a lot of um, yeah confusion. Uh, you know when when people sort of once people start saying you need to pre-register everything and you can't do like you need to correct for multiple comparisons and so on and then some people getting a bit upset about that and think like yeah but there's like this research that I do that doesn't quite fit that um, and I think there was a lot of um, orthodoxy about that in the beginning where if people sort of criticize the uh, anything about a pre-registration or, or some of the proposed measures that uh, you might assume that there's like bad faith that they're just trying to pack and get away with it or something like that. And I think it was missing that, of course, there are cases where um, you still want to use, for example, some um, statistical procedures and it makes a lot of sense. It's just we have to figure out how that fits into sort of the overarching framework. So, for example, um, you can have, like, you can just, uh, you, you could have a data set and just want to explore if there are certain uh, effects that are not zero and you don't really have a theoretically motivated prediction um, and to me it's totally clear that yeah you can it makes sense to if you want to use uh, significance tests for example 
you could um, try to uh, make sure that you correct for a number of tests that you do. And it's really important that you really know that these are num like that you're um, uh, correcting for the multiple comparisons in the correct way, right? That you're not sort of um, uh, just saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to run to, to test until I find something and then I correct for the number of tests that I've done. Like that, you should think about this in a clever way that it, has, that it takes the counterfactuals into account and so on. Um, but it, you can do that, right? Like that's, to that's totally fine. And if you didn't know what to expect, but then you know you have a better way of learning from the data, right? What, you, what you're doing is um, it's induction, right? You have data. You don't yet have any strong hunches what's happening there, but you want to know what is happening. You want to um, make an inference from the data and like, uh, to form new hypotheses, for example. But then you want to know that they, these things are robust. Like, of course, you will, um, they will always depend on your data and you might want to test them again in a confirmatory way. They say, okay, now I have this thing, I want to confirm it. But um, it's not, not all bets are off just because you don't have the hypothesis beforehand. Right? Like you can learn from your, from your data in a way where you, um, uh, make, where you keep errors in check more or less. Right. And so that is not an, that is not a contradiction. Uh, and I think, yeah, so there's a, this is a part where I was, um, uh, I had some discussions, uh, early on when I was starting to think about the stuff with, uh, Hannah Watkins, who's now in, in Canberra. Um, she, she just left academia actually. She now works for, for government. Uh, well, she does, she still does research. Um, uh, but for the government before that she did a postdoc which I thought was a nice uh, tangent, maybe. Uh, anyway, she has a she ha had a blog. She wrote a blog post some years ago about exactly this that that we tend to, you know, we, we uh, pit sort of exploratory against confirmatory. This is like one dimension, and then you are supposed to separate them. And for some reason, like the confirmatory stuff is like the rigorous stuff, and where you don't fool yourself. And the exploratory stuff is, yeah, we don't know. Like we have no error control. Uh, we don't like this could be anything everything is allowed, like you can do all the things, but no, you don't really know what anything means. Um, and she basically pointed out that it's not um, necessarily like that. Like, just because you don't predict it doesn't mean you don't, doesn't mean you want, um, uh, you want reliability, right? You want more, like a bit more, uh, you, you can do things rigorously, even if you don't have a hypothesis, it's totally possible. And that's exactly, uh, that is part of, no, it's not exactly, but this is part of the point. That you can do, that just pure induction uh, is of course fine, is of course an important, really important part of, of research. Um, and we just, we can figure out solutions for these problems, you know, like that are just better suited to the goal that you have at the time. Um, and yeah, one, one last thing that I want to add to this is that um, what we write in the paper, like, of course, all of these things can be fine by themselves. Like, you don't, your end goal doesn't have to be to test hypothesis at all, by the way. This is, like, not, you know, I think, as at least I, the way I was, I, I was trained, I, I thought that was the main thing that we do, but now I don't think so anymore. Mm. Um, so that's why we call the paper, um, uh, why hypothesis testers should spend less time testing hypotheses to make clear that this is, you know, we're conditioning on the... Uh, on you wanting to test hypothesis, and if you don't want to test hypothesis, that's also fine. <laughs> like it's, 
<laughs> doesn't always have to go that way. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Nice. I want to talk a little bit about like exploratory experiments. Like it seems like an interesting idea, but I, when I think about like, like if, so for example, if I'm interested in, which I am, I'm interested in education. A lot of time, like the research that I would want to do would involve like maybe school children. Right. And to me, it just seems like, I always think about this, like when people don't have, when people don't have clear ideas about what they want to test, it just seems like we're wasting people's time and money and resources on like testing these ideas that might not pan out. And I'm not sure like how we balance that. Like how do you balance like doing some exploratory experiments, but also making sure that we're just not, you know, shooting in the totally in the dark and just wasting a bunch of time and money and resources, especially when you're working with, you know, a specific kind of populations and it's not just super easy to do like a bunch of MTurk experiments. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean I totally agree that that's a there's a trade off there. Um, I mean, and it's difficult because on the one hand, I think, um, you know, doing the premature hypothesis test can be, and probably often is, in my view, the bigger waste of resources, mm. right? Like if you sort of specify something and then later you, found, you find out it's meaning, it was actually like meaningless, like we don't know what, what any of this is actually measuring. Um, so that, I think, to me is a case to um, be careful about this and, and say, you know, no, we investing stuff in, in, this early, in these earlier parts is fine. The problem with it is that the earlier parts are less, um, it's less certain what they lead you to, right? Um, so they are sort of more exploratory in the sense that you can't just say, okay, you know, for example, concept formation, like, okay, I'm going to do some concept formation now and then I'll have a good concept. Like, I can't, I can't guarantee that. Like, I don't know how that, how exactly right. that works, what exactly the outcome will be. Um, I mean, with the, so exploratory experimentation is a very specific um, part, like that's just one technique and it's not necessarily a good, um, you know, a, a, a good method for everyone. Like this is just one of the things you can do. And I found it interesting to think, to, to remember that, yeah, this can be, it can be exploratory. Uh, and we, um, so we, um, we quote a paper, um, we uh, refer to, to a paper um, by, by Steinle, who is a historian of science, I think, and describes this uh, in the um, history of physics or um, electromagnetism. Mm. Uh, and this is a, by the way, this paper that we cite there, I can, this is such a great and cool read. I really recommend this. This is really, really nice. I think history of science can be super fascinating. <laughs> this one is really fun. Um, so he's describing the, you know, the history of um, uh, yeah, electromagnetism and you have to like, put yourself in the shoes of the people who discovered that where they didn't know what it was and you just have the phenomenon of certain things attracting each other or like repelling each other and you, ha you don't know what, what's happening. Like what is this? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like imagine not even having the concept of um, like sort of positive and negative or like the same is sort of the same things uh, repel each other and and sort of different poles attract each other like you don't even have that concept you don't know that that it describes anything meaningful right and then and is thinking this is like you basically you're faced with this puzzle with you see that there's something and you want to understand it and so he describes like exploratory experimentation that these uh, people used to say we'll vary things and see what happens 
right? Like we vary the material, we, we vary the, the orientation of which we put uh, different objects next to each other and we, we vary the, um, uh, the, like the, the type of, I don't know, the, the way we electrify them and stuff like that. And that is, of course, quite far away from psychology. Yeah. Right, and this is something you can very sort of cheaply do in your own lab, at least with these people. Although some of, the, I think, um, one of the physicists he talks about actually, I think, spent like half of his month's salary on a new battery uh, <laughs> that was like that was powerful enough to to do one of the experiments. So, um, or like even a full month's salary. I don't know. But but yeah, like you, can, this is a very different type of research. Yeah, you can and control I, those so much more tightly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But then again, I think, um, yeah, it, in some cases, you can do that really well in psychology. I think, when, so we spoke to, um, to Alan Fisk and Thomas Schubert and Beate Seib, two of them the, um, who are sort of spearheading the Kamamuta research and, and some of the things they did. And it sounded like um, they have done a lot of work with um, uh, student groups, so in their own teaching, they've basically been teaching seminars on this for, for a long time, and then each, each student cohort sort of tests a new thing about this, and it does sound very exploratory. You know, it sounds like, yeah, like we don't, you know, we still don't really fully understand the concept, and let's try to, let's have this slightly wild idea, and we're not going to use a huge sample, but we're just going to see what happens, you know, just to get a better idea. Like, this is, I think, the exploratory experimentation can really be very tight leading to concept formation. It's like understanding what you're faced with, right? Like, what is this thing? Um, and so uh, I think, you know, for that, like, smaller samples can be totally fine. Uh, it can be very, like, playful and, and open. But, it, of course, yeah, I can't, like, you can't just um, prescribe that for every research program or something like that. It might be a really bad fit, of course. Yeah. And I, I mean, I totally agree that we should be doing more of that stuff and spending more time, you know, you know, concept formation and just like doing this playful experimentation, try to figure, really figure out what it is that we're trying to measure and learn about. But I, I mean, I think Paul raised this point in the emails we had back and forth about, I mean, the incentives for, I mean, graduate students or early or anybody, right, are just not set up to do that, right? I, I even I am just like in my, starting my second year and I just feel like this pressure to, you know, publish and do hypothesis testing and sort of just like hit the road and I don't want to do that, but <laughs> I just feel kind of like like I'm being like left behind where I'm just trying to be like thoughtful about what I'm doing. But it just seems like the incentive structures are not set up for that. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> and I'm experiencing the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually, I find it really difficult because so often, and now, like now it's getting, it feels like after having written this paper, it gets worse because now I have more of a, like now I have more of a concept for this thing that bugs me right now. <laughs> right. Like now I even have, like now I, like it's easier for me to, to understand it and then it, it kind of makes it worse. Like that's <laughs> Yeah, now you've labeled it, there's a name for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh yeah, that's actually <laughs> something a- you could do, you know, like... Right. Um, but yeah, totally. So, um, I, like I, in my own research, I don't, I don't want to publish papers that are crap, you know, like not just like, just because I think, you know, I don't want to waste my participants time. I don't want to waste the readers time. I don't want to waste, waste the taxpayers money they spend on my time that I'm doing this. It's just, I, and I, yeah, I kind of want to have a pretty high threshold and that can be super stifling, but then 
especially when, yeah, you have a limited time for your PhD, you're supposed to have output, like you're supposed yeah. to have these papers, and then papers are supposed to take this certain shape. Um, and um, yeah, so I can, I, I'm faced with this right now, by the way, like even today, I've been <laughs> grappling with this on some level. So uh, yeah, uh, like, tell me if this is like not interesting, but I can... Uh, no, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, one of something that I'm uh, interested in, or that I that I want to theoretically run a study on, is um, the prior probability of hypotheses that are tested in registered reports compared to non-registered reports. Um, with the the uh, the idea being that. Um, well, I've, we've already done a study where we found that um, registered reports have um, fewer positive results than normal than normal literature in psychology, and the difference is quite striking. Um, and some people might argue that maybe the hypothesis tested in the two types of studies are not like are different. Um, so, in registered reports, you would sort of expect more negative results because maybe they just test way riskier hypotheses, um, and that might even make sense if. The, uh, let's say we have publication bias, right? So people might think it's difficult to publish negative results. But if you do registered report, then it doesn't matter what the result is, right? So right. then pe so people might strategically use registered reports for hypotheses and they think, oh, I'm not like, this is something I find interesting, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work. Um, mm. So that, that's possible. That's a possible explanation. I think in general, getting a better... Um, yeah, a view of the, the prior probability of hypotheses in, in psychology would be uh, really important. Uh, okay, fine. So now I'm like I'm re I'm supposed to do a study on this. Like I've I've agreed with my advisors that this should be my thesis, and it's so incredibly hard. Like, what is a hypothesis? What is a the prior probability of what? And it. It looks trivial at first, but if you get into it, there are so many problems. So, yeah, I have a study where we coded, like, the first verbal hypothesis in a paper mm. and then coded what the author's conclusions were, if the hypothesis was supported or not. Uh, but those verbal hypotheses, uh, as in the beginning, they can be quite different from the statistical tests, right? right? So they are not fully operationalized there's some operationalization in them usually but like what and so can you can give even uh, uh, an example yeah i actually have the data set in front of me so um <laughs> um oh wait i have i actually have one from memory um that is by uh, it's a paper by uh, i think it Andy Shabilsky is the first author, and I think it's Amy Orban is also on the paper. Um, I think it's in Psych Science, and it's one of their papers on um, uh, uh, the connection between screen time and well-being mm -hmm. or something. And this study is pre-registered. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, it might. Yeah, I think it. I think it was pre-registered, and they have the hypothesis that there's an. Um, uh, inverse u-shaped relationship between screen time and well-being in children adolescents or something like that um with the idea that um like too much is bad for you uh, but too little can also be uh like not 
I don't know, if, like bad for you, but like both the extreme ends might be associated sort of with problematic things. And then like a medium amount of, of this might be good for people. So like the Goldilocks. I think that's also in the title of the paper, Goldilocks. Mm-hmm. And okay, that seems fair. Like that seems pretty straightforward, right? Like as a hypothesis. Um, but then they look at four different types of screen time because screen time is not a great concept, as they've also um, very nicely discussed in, in later papers. I think Amy has a, I think Amy has a paper on this. Um, so, for example, playing video games, uh, watching TV, and sort of that. So you have th- four four outcomes already, and then they differentiate between um, uh, screen time on the weekend and screen time on the weekdays, and so you end up with eight different outcomes. So four. Um, times types of screen time and then two um, uh, yeah, and then weekday and, we, uh, and, and weekend um, and then if I'm if I want to code like the test results for this hypothesis what do I do like there are eight outcomes how do I you know how do I combine them to see if the hypothesis holds up or not so the outcomes are like well-being right like the outcome something yeah. like yeah, right. Okay. Well, it's, it's sort of the the sort of inverse U-shaped mm. relationship between uh, screen time and well-being. Yeah, and for for each of these eight, basically, so mm. you have eight inverse U's or not, right? Mm. Like uh, I but think a lot of them just one measure of well-being. Like oh yeah, uh, yes, exactly. There's just one measure of, of well-being, so that part is simple. And then there are other papers where that is a lot less simple, uh, and it gets just extremely messy. And the thing is. Um, I'm not saying that, that that any of that's wrong. Like, I don't think so, right? Like, people have, uh, um, like, do these studies and they learn things from them. It's just the link between the hypothesis and the results is not nearly as tight as, as we think. Um, and it's actually, and that makes it problematic if we think that we can learn from them, from them in that way. But maybe there are other types of information that we, that we learn um, or the inferences are on a different level sometimes. Mm. That's interesting, though, because this is another thought that I had, which was just that the way I think about most empirical research is not really about what the authors are telling me about their hypothesis and whether it was supported or not. It's more like, well, what did they do? What does the data say? And so I almost, I had this thought when I was reading your paper, which is just that like, I'm kind of okay with people framing what they do as confirmatory and, you know, and often having these messy derivation chains. If they're, if they're just discovering robust effects, like if they're actually using pre-registration and um, transparency and I can trust their effects, I guess I, I don't have to take their word for it that they prove this theory or this hypothesis. Like I can, you know, maybe I think there's a confound there that they didn't control for and stuff like that, but that's still useful information to me. So yeah, I guess I I might be less concerned than you about these messy links between theories, hypotheses and data. Um, just because I think if people are transparent and they have well-powered studies and their results are replicable, I can still learn a lot from what a lot of people are doing. Maybe not, maybe not always, but if it's in my area, if it's relevant to what I'm doing, um, it can still be quite useful. 
Well, um, so uh, I, I partly disagree, uh, not completely, because yeah, of course it can still be diff- still be useful. Of course, like I don't, I don't doubt that there's some information in there. You know, there's like it's not, it's not the worst thing you can do. I just think we can do better, um, and I think uh, a lot of the readers um, and a lot of people using those studies. Uh, do not read them in the way you, you read them and might not be as well informed. And very often they're not motivated to be as well informed because they just need this one reference or they just need this one measure and they are not actually experts in what that means. And so they just take somebody's word for it that this is fine, right? And then, so one thing that I'm actually, that I'm very worried about is that um, we get into situations where you build like a bullshit mountain in the literature where it's, there's one, like somebody published something that has issues, but it's sort of very novel and exciting. Um, and then nobody actually checks that exact thing, but everybody takes it for granted and builds on it because it's flashy and exciting. And nobody actually checks the original assum- the sort of assumption this is all built on. And then you get this like bubble of, of, um, of like new papers that are all sort of, building on each other and nobody actually finds the um, the one problematic assumption. So um, maybe one, one e- recent example. So uh, a friend of mine, Ruben Aslan, just uh, published a new uh, paper where they looked at um, how risk-taking self-reports, uh, are what they actually measure. So uh, I'm not an expert in this area at all. I'm also not very w- well read up, but... Um, I learned when we wrote our paper that risk-taking is, um, is a bit of a mess in terms of how it's measured. So people use different measures for risk-taking and they tend, apparently those uh, sometimes don't correlate with each other at all. So you can measure risk-taking with, um, uh, for example, certain types of lotteries. And then there's a task that, is, uh, that I find quite strange. It's like you, you're, you're supposed to pump air into a balloon uh, or as much air as possible before it before it uh, explodes, and then oh, the idea right. is that people who are yeah who are like more Hired. you know who are more risk seeking they're not as scared of of the explosion <laughs> or they're willing to like go further to what's the limit and it turns out that apparently this just doesn't track other measures of it very well at all, but it's really widely used you know and there are often cases of this where something seem you know somebody. F- came up with a fancy thing and then suddenly you have like whole sub-literatures that are sort of based on that and just based on the assumption that it's valid. And then they might like read what they might be doing in the end. It's completely unclear what that means. It might be a huge waste of time and money. Yeah. And to add to that, there was another example that I saw recently of this paper. And apparently this paradigm gets used, has been used often, where to measure individualism versus collectivism they just offer participants pens and like all of them are the same color except for one. And the idea is if you pick the one that's not the same color, then that somehow like signifies that you are, you are more individualistic. And I could not believe this. Oh, was clearly, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> it just like is the most absurd. And I was, I can't, and my advisor was like, Oh yeah, it gets used a lot. And I thought it was just the most absurd thing. Um, but to, and to add to that, I sort of agree with, and that I sort of disagree with, Paul, because to me, like, I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I really don't think that you can separate what somebody does from 
what they think they're doing or what they're saying, right? I don't think you can just look at their data and their results in isolation of the question they're asking because the questions that you're asking determine how you collect the data. And so it's sort of weird to say that, oh yeah, I can sort of separate that out and just look at what they did and then draw, like get information from that because yeah, again, there's assumptions in how they're measuring those things that I think yeah. are important. But at the same time, say somebody is interested in the effect of some variable on risk-taking and they're measuring it with this balloon blowing up task, right? And they pre-register and they do all the hypothesis testing. And, and so a meta-scientist would say, well, the problem with your derivation chain is you have a bad measure of risk-taking, right? Um, but at the same time, if they establish a robust effect on blowing up a balloon um, and they can replicate it, I don't agree that it's likely to be meaningless, right? Like maybe we think it's a waste of time and they should be studying something else, but that, like that's pretty subjective. But I guess I think like if you have a robust effect that is replicable, it's it's pretty subjective, I guess, to call that meaningless because like maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't line up with risk taking and this person who really cares about risk taking they should probably understand that and be trying to like uh, generalize. And if they had unlimited resources, they'd probably, yeah, like incorporate other measures of risk taking as well. Um, but at the same time, like, I think it's rare. Like we might say that a measure's really bad if its internal reliability is like, I don't know, um, 0.5 or something like that. But I also just think like, yeah, like it's it's not ideal, but it's also not noise, right? Like there's there's clearly signal there, and if this researcher had more resources, we could like sort of sort through that. And I I'm not sure the problem is the derivation chain. I think the problem is more that this researcher is not given the time or resources to really like explore the idea that they want to explore fully, and I. I'm not sure that, yeah, I think it would be great if we all spent a lot more time and effort like on one question um, and did everything that we want to do. Because I think like reading this paper, like most of it, uh, I think is stuff that most researchers would love to do if they had unlimited time and unlimited resources. And none of it, most of it's stuff that like, I think most people do know how to do, maybe not with some of it, but like, I think everybody can think of like moderators, everybody can think of boundary conditions and everybody can think of different operationalizations and different ways of measuring things and different ways of connecting what they want to study to important outcomes and better ways of doing what they want to do and, and stuff like that. But I think like, I, I just feel like the reason we don't do that is because well, it's not, it's not incentivized and it's a little bit dull. And, you know, for the most part, like we're not Charles Darwin. We're like, we don't, we don't have the resources or the capability to spend 40 years, like earning no money from our research and trying like building one theory um, and just incrementally working on one thing. And then like at the end of our life, write a book and say, Hey, look what I discovered evolution. Well, so 
first I want to say that the, the researcher who wants to study risk taking and does only does the balloon task thing, um, I would say that they have they wasted their time and effort to the extent that they were interested in risk taking uh, and not just the balloon task. So you know, Leah, I'm not I'm not the person to judge if the um, studying the balloon task really rigorously um, if that's a if that's a good or bad thing. Like I I can't say that for all of research, right? It depends, of course. It always depends. Any of these things might be valuable in some sense, but to the extent that the researcher themselves draws inferences that are not warranted, and they actually wanted that, that's what they that's why they did the study. Then I think then they have a problem in in my opinion and you know i think to me a lot of the like we a lot of the time we want to we do research to get a better understanding of how the world works i think and not just does this very specific thing in the lab produce this very specific thing in the lab but at some point we want to get to like theories that make sort of broader sense of things right and like another thing that I uh, learned to appreciate through uh, Leo Tiochin, who's uh, um, and not not just writing this paper, but ever since he's joined our lab, is um, uh, how much formal modeling matters for understanding what you're actually saying, what your hypothesis actually means, and if your the thing you think will happen actually follows from your assumptions that you have. Um, and that's not a that's not a trivial thing. So, he what he does before he runs an empirical study is he models it. So he basically sets up his he tries to formalize his uh, hypothesis, what like which assumptions um, are supposed to um, produce a certain outcome, and then he simulates it. Um, and only then, if that works, and if he can figure out sort of how how that um, would work formally then he tests it. Um, and that's really nice because if you don't do that, you often, um, sometimes it turns out that because our brains are sort of limited in the, how they can do this math on their own, is that um, your predictions don't actually follow from your assumptions because you've missed something very important that like wouldn't make this, wouldn't produce the effect or would produce a different effect or something like that. And if you just go and run like some and, and run to the lab and, and put in some specific operationalization of whatever you have in mind, you you might not be aware of what that means. That thing that you have like this the effect you observe, you might not understand what it means. And you have some implicit view of what it means. Right? And that's sort of the thing that you think you've learned about the world and what you draw back into like your bigger network of theories and how things work in general and then how other things will work, right? And because of this result that also means this thing these things. And I think if we you know, we just might be doing the or I think we're doing this so inefficiently. Right? We're like we we're, we're wrong so often when we do that because um because we don't use tools that help us with doing this in a better way because we don't spend the time to make sure that these inference are actually tighter. Um, and so, you know, at some, on some level, everything is on a spectrum. Like, I'm not saying anything is completely worthless, but can you do better, right? And I think we can do better. And I think um, this, yeah, this, this paper mm. is basically just to say, 
maybe, you know, maybe just, just ask yourself if this is, you know, if, if you can do a little better, maybe, and if there might be more in it for you. Yeah, I guess I, yeah, I also think if efficiency is the goal, then there is a risk with some of this stuff that it's also wasting people's time. Like, I'll give you an example, right? So I, I did a study, I was measuring implicit bias towards um, targets, uh, the white or black, high SES, low SES, right? Um, sent the results to a researcher just to see what she thought. And her response was, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really buying it because you haven't had these targets rated for their perceived race. You don't, you don't know that the white targets are really perceived as white. You don't know that the black targets are really perceived as black, right? Now, okay, to me, yeah, I kind of do because it's actually pretty obvious. Like I can look at somebody and say whether they're white or black and I can predict what a sample is going to say with like 99% accuracy. So I went, I got more data, you know, like a few hundred Berkeley students asked them, hey, does this person look white to you? Does this person look black to you? And it looked exactly like I expected it to look, right? So here we have a situation where, yeah, this person found a possible problem in the derivation chain, like one assumption that I was making. But I think it's an example where, like, the assumption was pretty justified. And as, like, a person with common sense, I think there is a lot of stuff like this where you can really... Like, I, I think a lot of measures that people make up purely based on face validity are fine, right? And I also think that, like, the whole, like, psychometrics and validation ultimately all boils down to face validity anyway. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not that impressed by all that. Like, I, I you know, so, like, I, I just know. think that... I, I no, think no, no, you're... let me finish. Just let me finish. <laughs> like... This, the idea of efficiency is something that works both ways, right? Because when, when, when if, if this paper gets really popular and every researcher is like, ah, I, I'm going to, like, as a reviewer, examine the derivation chain and, like, you didn't test if these targets were really white or really black or you didn't test if your subjects actually understood English or, you know, you, you, like, you didn't test, the, you didn't ask them if they were all high on, on drugs while they were taking the survey, like, it does get to be a point where it's inefficient and somewhat like absurd and we have to just sort of apply common sense and the yeah like I, I i tend to agree with you that we'd be doing better science if we did this stuff more i think there's like a slight risk that people go overboard with this stuff and some of it's slightly overkill oh totally i mean of course everything can be misused and actually so first um you won't get like you cannot get the perfect derivation chain. You cannot test all the assumptions. You cannot. You probably can't even know all the assumptions, unfortunately. That would be great, but we won't get there. The thing is, can we do better than we currently do? So I think even making the assumptions explicit is a great first step. And I think in practice, we're so far away from that. Right? That would already be great just to see it. And then I think some assumptions are, are worth testing much more than others. So in your case... You know, you think this is really ob really obvious and you might not need a, hundred a few hundred participants to test this because the effect is super big, for example. Uh, and you might also have other reasons to a priori think it's not worth my money to test this at all. But maybe there's another problem that is actually bigger and where the answer is much less certain. So let's invest our money there, right? So yeah, you'll have you'll have diminishing returns, of course. I don't doubt that. And I'm not, as I said, the... It's not about a perfect derivation chain. It's about like where, well, I mean, 
you know, the, the paper isn't even, go, isn't even going as far as saying this is exactly what you should do and this is exactly how the perfect end result or good end result should look like. So, um, and that's, I mean, it's definitely a shortcoming, but the thing is you can't, you can never solve all the problems in one paper. And I honestly think like I'm really not an expert on a lot of the things we argue for. So I think we need more sort of local expertise for um, you know, research communities that study a particular topic and that set their own standards and that just, and I mean, to some degree, of course, that is already the case. And then you can say, you know, and we do, we expect this for this particular part and we expect, and this is a good way of doing that. Um, and yeah, so it's basically like, don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. That's like not, um, I think that's not really the point. And then to the extent to like your argument about measurement and face validity, uh, I'm a lot more skeptical about that, but I really think you should talk to a measurement person uh, about that. And I think that it all, like everything, it just depends on your assumptions. Like you might have some things in mind that are more or less fine. And then I think there's a lot of stuff that's really, really bad in the literature and we don't realize how bad it is. Um, and one aspect of that is also the, the connection to concepts. It's not just you think you measure you think this measure is face valid, but if you actually think about what that means, like what the thing is that's supposed to be valid for, is that really as uh, well defined as you think? Do different people really agree about that? Like, are we really sure what what we're talking about? And so I think, but yeah, we we just seem to have a we seem to have a slightly different take, uh, but we are probably also thinking of different of different things. Yeah, and I'll just add, I think you're sort of overestimating how common common sense is. Like, I really don't, like, it seems, and, and of course, all our assumptions seem valid to us, like, otherwise we wouldn't be making them, right? And I think the idea, if, if you're, if the goal is to be a meticulous researcher, I think, yeah, I mean, testing them, surely, but also just, you know, as Anne said, like, explicating, explicating them, I think is important. And I don't think a lot of people do that. So I, th I don't think the idea is to do everything perfectly but to just make people think a bit more about these things before they go around running studies and i think a similar like there, there's the paper that came out recently on pre-registration is redundant at best right and i think that was making a very similar argument that if you are thoughtful about all these things before you're going and doing your pre-registration then right like then it's a it's a redundant thing so i think it's mostly yeah people should be thinking about these things and most people aren't and i think that's the issue Yeah, I, I don't fully agree with that paper. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but, me neither. Uh, but but I think it was sort of similar in some respects. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So basically, I feel yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like Paul, you said like you made it like you're making it difficult to to argue when you say you so you're sort of basically building a case where it's great already, right? Like that's uh, that, that's a difficult to say what's what's wrong with it. So. Um, Wait, what do you, what, but, sorry, what do you mean? Uh, I, I mean, if you, um, um, so, so earlier, for example, you, you said you gave an uh, example where something is really robust and replicable and it might just, and people are really transparent about it and it might mm -hmm. just not be um, valid for, this, for mm -hmm. something that people take it for. But yeah, then we already have a lot, like some, this is this is already a pretty good case, right? Where all of that is transparent, and you can actually judge that. Um, I think you you know I'm, 
Uh, I've have you have you guys participated in one of these? Um, um, have you participated in any of the score projects where um, they're mm -hmm. trying to predict replicability in the replicates? I was at SIPS yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, to me, like I've I've done a, a few of those now, and every time I'm, I mean, I'm you know I'm still oscillating between extreme pessimism and optimism. And like on the, the general state of our field and then also the future and the past and everything, I kind of like I often think I'm too harsh and maybe things are really good. And then I do some of that for a while and I get so depressed. <laughs> like I feel like, you know, random studies from the literature, they are so bad. Like it's it's crazy. Like honestly, I, I, yeah. And, and then, you know, a, a while later, I think, yeah, maybe you're being too harsh. You know, maybe it's it's not really that bad. But then... Like a lot of stuff is really bad. Uh, no, I yeah. I think you're right, and but I was <laughs> like I mean you're in meta science now, right? So in in some ways, like you, you can just sort of sit on the sidelines of research and just like tell us what to do and what we should be doing and criticize our shitty research, and that's that's cool. Like like there's there's a market for that. You can keep publishing that and stuff like that. But like. I guess, like, I don't know, like, have have a bit of sympathy for us poor schmucks trying to like oh, look, look, have a I career. Have, like, look, I do. This is like, this is exactly why I say I'm like I'm oscillating between different things. I'm constantly I'm paranoid about um, being too judgmental and like thinking I know better or something like that, or thinking that um, I know what researchers are trying to achieve. And that mm. I understand that, and I'm very mindful of that that of my own shortcomings, and mm. that you know, and this this is why, like, for example, when we uh, uh, you you said something earlier that went to this direction. Um, I am actually another study I'm I'm currently planning um, is a qualitative study where I want to interview people about um, their goals in a study that they publish, so why they did it. Um, I think you said something about, you know, people write up a study in a particular, like they have their hypothesis, but you can read it in a different way. Hmm. And, you know, so I'm, the thing is, I, like, I don't think people are idiots. Of course not. Right. And they're not even, uh, I don't even just think they're super poorly educated and have no clue what they're doing. And they're just whatever, or that they have bad intentions. I think researchers have, um, for example, when, at least this is my experience, I'm sure this is other people's experience, they, they think about running a study and they have some idea or they have some design in mind and think, oh, this would be really cool. Like, I want to do this. It would be so cool. This would be really interesting. And I want to know what is that interestingness? What is that thing that you have in mind? Because, in you, because at the same time, people don't formalize going into a study exactly what it is they want to test and what that knowledge is that they want to gain. They usually don't write that down before doing the study. They do in a registered report, but even there it's written up in a particular way. Um, and even if people do a pre-registration, it's often very vague and superficial. But then they have a reason to run the study. There's something that they want to know. There's something that, that bugs them, right? And they are bright people and they have good ideas. And I'm, um, I'm really interested in that. And I think I don't think, you know, people are running bullshit studies because they are bored and have nothing else to do. Like, no, they want to find something out. And so I think some of the problems we might be seeing or, or part of the replication crisis can also be 
um, based on sort of a, a misfit between what people might want to achieve and the the methods that we teach and that we value and the way that we write up papers, right? And this is also why I wanted to write this paper and saying maybe you what you're actually trying to do is is on a different level and you're actually working on some other part of this and maybe we can figure out a good um, better methods to do that, you know, and then your paper wouldn't be a bad fit for this method, but mm. it would be a really good fit for this other method, right? Mm. Yeah. I just, yeah, I guess I think, like, I like I know that um, I would produce better science if I was able to devote a lot more time and resources to, like, a single question, uh, really, you know, strengthen the derivation chain and test boundary conditions and, um, you know... So why don't you... Do, do all of that stuff. Why, <laughs> why don't I? Because I know that, like, I won't survive in the field if I do that. Like, I know that you, like, we have to, we have to keep finding things. We have to keep making discoveries, right? Well, why and can't it you be can't, a discovery about the same thing? You can't say, well, in my first year, I discovered this thing. And then I spent five years testing different moderators of that thing. And these two sort of seem like it moderated. And these five seem like they don't moderate it. And then I tested a different operationalization of the DV in another five studies. At, like, because for the most part, like, you're just... People... Th I, I don't think people think that you're, like, disco <laughs> discovering enough. You're not, like... You're not adding enough in this additional work. Wait, but if your goal is to get to the truth of a certain phenomena, and it's a useful, meaningful phenomena that people care about and you care about, like, I don't... Why so, I, and so you're saying like we just sacrifice yourself, just like accept that you'll never get a job, nice. and like no, it's <laughs> like not, just it's not clear that. that you won't. Yeah, it's not clear. I think if you are being thought, if you're thoughtful, like and you're doing meaningful work that's meticulous, and like I don't, I think people appreciate that. I think that's what I mentioned. Like I, I don't think we need more people just running one-off studies. Oh, this study showed this, and this other study something completely different showed that. I, I don't think that's a way to do science. Like I really don't th and and just because incentives are set up poorly i don't think that's a good reason to say oh yeah this is just how the incentive structure is so we'll just do it this shitty way like it doesn't yeah like no i, I mean so but at the same time you can't you can't just ignore incentive structures you can't ignore what job committees are looking for no but i don't uh, think so you have to give up your you know vision of what science should be because of that I mean, to me, it's just like if I have to give up my vision of what science should be in order to stay in academia, then I won't stay in yeah, academia. It's not worth it. <laughs> it really isn't. Like that, but, that, but it's not a I binary. Mean, it's not a binary thing, right? Like, no. If I have if I have a finding, like, I, and you know, I have some ideas about maybe like boundary conditions that I would test if I had unlimited resources. Like, I'm not giving up my vision of science to just be like, well, I could have done that other stuff. I'd know more about it, but like. I, I'm so, also going to move on to like another project and see if I can. So okay, so so first, I like I can't give career advice for like the population of graduate students or something. Like I just can't, and I know that sometimes the the world out there is a lot darker and colder than I would like it to be. Maybe, 
Um, and I read like it's quite it's possible that some of this would ruin people's careers. The point of the like part of the um, what we would hope to the paper might achieve at some point in the future is to say, well, we need the incentives also to to do these things, right? We need outlets for this, and we need people to appreciate this. So, for example, if there is an article format that allows you to do some of these things and you can actually publish a paper that you know fits that mold then at least you know you have a publication for that so that's already that's a good start and then uh of course the 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 other question is how much do colleagues like appreciate that Uh, that's a different question but i think you know sometimes like i wouldn't be so pessimistic because some of like these things can be super interesting and people sometimes really love that kind of work that is much more um, basic and trying to figure things out before you know before testing something I would like one recommendation I have for people listening to this is to read up on some of the Kamamuta research that we cite this has been so it's so wholesome like it's so nice to read these things it's so it gives really gives this feeling ah this is ah, this is how research should be like this is so nice I get such a rich understanding this is so cool and they have graduate students, too, that have been involved in this. And they actually have this whole website where you can see um, all of the publications and you can sort of tell it how, you know, some of the directions that graduate students, for example, went mm. into. And, and would, you mind sharing, so, would you mind sharing some of these, like, papers and stuff later so I can add it to the show notes for listeners? Yeah, sure. It's, yeah, it's also, uh, yeah, uh, sure. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's also, it's in the paper, but... Um, and the, the um, so I think don't don't underestimate how interesting like that if this is possible I think it's more possible than people tend to think so and I the other thing is I wanted to like ask you on that so the Kamamuta stuff I, I was reading through it and I it wasn't totally clear why you guys thought what they had done was so so good like it's it sounded it sounded pretty standard social psyche stuff to me like they proposed this construct they think exists kamamuda um which is like i mean we have the word of like i was moved i was touched we kind of have the concept already in english at least they propose like specific things that make you feel this thing and like like they, they developed a scale of this thing and then supposedly validated it i'm really curious how they validated it what they validated it against um you know, so like, what what actually is it about their this research program that strikes you as really admirable and better than like like just pretty standard personality psych type stuff? Uh, well, first, I don't like I, I don't want to, uh, to I, I can't really speak too much of personality psych stuff and what like the standards are that's not my area um and i do think that striking that personality psychologists at least the ones i talk to tend to tell me they're not very interested in hypothesis testing uh, as well but anyway this is a different uh, topic so okay i'm it's a bit okay I'm, I'm a bit i'm a little bit heartbroken that you didn't take this away from our write-up but the thing is we had very little space and we tried to condense a ton of information into very very little space and so what they did is just so much more wide-ranging than the stuff I've, I'm used to in the psychology literature. So the types of um, uh, information that they took into account was just 
you know, not just um, asking some undergrads some questions, um, but it was all sorts of um, like eth types of eth ethnographies in different contexts, in uh, historical materials that they uh, visited in lots of different cultures, uh, doing interviews, having, you know, like just like a huge range of sources, of settings, of cultures, and then the um, the scale that they developed and validated, uh, it is they, um, uh, they did this in, the scale was developed in, I think, 15 languages or more than that at the same time. And they did this in 19 nations from across the world in different cultures, which I think is, is way beyond the, the typical standards for this. Um, so, yeah, I think if it, like, if it sounds standard to you, then I would recommend reading up on, on the, some, like, looking at the, the papers well, that we cite. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, like, they have a lot more resources to devote to these things, like, because the average, the average project like this, just it's not possible to write a scale in 19 languages and validate it. So, yeah, like, a lot more yeah i guess you could say a lot more time and attention i i guess i'm not yeah i'm not sure that it goes far beyond that like it like i'm not sure i'm that much more confident in their conclusions as a result of all that than i would be if they you know had done it in a couple of samples or had you know had less historical text like to me like it, it's just like you know, they're, they're making this argument for this thing, like this emotion exists, like, and I guess they're arguing that it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I haven't read the, I haven't read the research, so I shouldn't, um, yeah, and I, mean, I shouldn't be saying this. Like, just even validating measures, right? We don't even do that, all that, like, we use self-report so much, so often, like, so, so, so often. And I'm currently taking a measurement course in education, and it's like, yeah, just giving people sentences and then putting, like, Likert scales on them, like, awful way to actually measure things right and nobody even go like people will just like make up items on the fly and then put a liquor scale on it without even thinking about oh does it actually map on to real levels that you might see of this construct well first of all what this construct really is and does the levels of it map on to what you're giving the people options for and i think we need to be okay, so, so much more thoughtful about things like that i'll just add a very small example to that which is that somebody told me that they were trying to measure depression and they had an item in the depression scale which is like i did everything this week that was difficult or i did things everything felt difficult or i and what they realized was that people in america were answering that and then it was like a thing of depression but when they asked like chinese students they were answering yes to that question not because they were depressed but because they were like, the, they thought the question was asking, am I challenging myself? Like I did things that like everything felt hard meant like, oh, I did things that were like challenging me. And that was a good thing. And I feel like you miss those kinds of things if you don't do like cognitive interviewing and you're asking people, what do you think this item means? So, um, but yeah, mm. yeah. yeah, I don't and know if we've way, reached that, it. That is also why I want like the, the qualitative study I mentioned that I'm right. currently planning myself is right. also in that, in exactly that line. So I want to talk to people about their own research goals yeah. research interests and the reason I'm doing an interview study is because I don't know what those might be and what level they might be on and I, so one another thing would be just to come up with my own categories of research goals and say okay clearly this is a type of research goal you could have and this is a type of research and so I'm just going to give people a questionnaire and ask them how often they you know want to do one thing or the other 
but I don't know. Like I don't, I, I don't have the language yet. So it makes no sense for me to just, you know, impose my own language and just see if, you know, I don't know what those numbers would tell me. So I want to talk to people to get to get some ideas, you know, some original language from them to form some concepts, and those will not be like definitive and the but it's like a starting point and then you can take that and do other things with that right and um and and at some point maybe get to something that is uh, yeah uh, yeah yeah well we're happy to be subjects for you Anne, if you need <laughs> if you need <laughs> two subjects but um i guess um yeah we should wrap this up yeah. yeah, I guess. I yeah. mean, I know we, it doesn't feel like we. Yeah, we could talk for another I couple hours. Yeah, <laughs> it, feel, it feels, Paul. In the beginning, you said you agreed to eighty-five percent. It feels like you talked yourself out of this for like I don't no, know how, no, many, I mean, how many percent are left. Well, this is this is what always ends up happening because, like, I don't feel like it's worthwhile just talking about how much I agree with. I the thing, you know, like I feel the same thing on Twitter sometimes. Like, I if I just agree with somebody, I feel like it's boring and. So it seems like I'm this really negative person because the only times I I tweet is when I disagree with people. And I think, yeah, so I guess like I've been trying to focus on um, the, disagreements. the disagreements. But I don't know, like, and I'm glad that there's meta scientists and I think it's valuable. I do. Uh, but I also just think... I mean, science is hard. It's hard. Like, yeah. we can all agree to that, that it's really difficult to do, and it's really difficult, even more difficult to do well. Um, yeah. I guess, I, yeah, like, I did have the thought that, like, when I was reading this, I was like, you know, if we actually just had far less people trying to do science and gave each of those people far more resources, then, you know, they'd be doing all this stuff. Like, we this stuff would be far less of a problem. Like, I don't think people would just be jumping from project to project. And so, like, yeah, this this gets to, like, what we can do, right? Like, what we can do. And it definitely makes me think, yeah, Daniel Luck is totally right that we should all be involved in Psych Science Accelerator. We should, you know, get our work collaboratively. Um, and I don't really know how Psych Science Accelerator works, but I, w- I would imagine there's a bit of a, like, hierarchy involved, Um in terms of deciding what questions uh, get worked on and who has final say over like certain questions. But I don't know. It just, it does seem to me that like, yeah, if a lot of this stuff comes down to, yeah, the time and the resources and the incentives of the field. And then like, yeah, like you, and then I know your response is like, well, we're trying to change that. And I guess I think that's good. Um, But scientists, Scientists who are still stuck in this field that hasn't changed yet, um, I do think uh, at times can feel justified saying, look, you know, yeah, like I'm making a lot of assumptions here. Um, yeah. And, no, and, and I, I then, only have you so know, many resources. I would, I, that's like, uh, Smriti said that earlier, that you can, like, just making that explicit isn't already the, a great first step, right? That's just mm. sort of the, the humility of it and saying, yeah, like my time and resources are limited. I can't, I know these things would be important. This is sort of, you know, gets down to a limitation section, but maybe in a more extensive way and saying, look, okay, this is, you know, these are the things we know. These are the things we assume. And here are the gaps. Like here are the things that we still need to fill in. 
right? And and just being honest about that, that would that would be a great first step. You know, everything is limited, of course. Every, mm. Like nobody can do all these things at once, or even maybe in their lifetime alone. Like I don't know. Uh, you know, my own studies are super limited in exactly this way and super unsatisfying on so many levels. So um, I don't I don't think that is the issue. Um, I just want to say one last thing about the um, incentives. So I went I had I had an idea um, in l last like almost a year ago now. Uh, I was talking to, to Chris Chambers about registered reports and he said, this was actually funny because, I mean, Chris Chambers has like invented registered reports basically, right? And he said that he uh, had one himself, like was involved in one, was a senior author or something. And the editor was uh, Marcel van Assen. And he said Marcel was being so tough on them. Like he said, you know, Chris was like, you know, I thought I had like registered reports figured out. And I was like being really, uh, and, but, but like apparently Marcel was like, this is like, this is like uh, a mouse mission or something. Like you have to like spell every detail. Like we know that you start this thing and you'll, you can predict that it will end exactly there. And it was like really tough to, to be so precise, right? And then that made me think that, yeah, this is like, this is exactly what, like in a registered report, these things become sort of more pronounced, like you become more aware ahead of time, all these things that you need to have in place to really know, you know, you can launch this rocket and it's gonna, and it's going to work and it's going to land there. But again, like you say, we have limited resources and it's really difficult to do all these things, to do all that groundwork. And where does that go? Who does it give you the time and the, the place and so on? And so I thought, what about, let's imagine we had a f an article format. That's, it's, that's like a registered report. So you, you write like a stage one registered report. You say, here's this thing we want to test. And here's how we think we can test it. And we sort of list like the assumptions and parts of the study. And then it gets reviewed and all the like weak, point, weak points are pointed out and saying, okay, but we need evidence that this thing works and we need evidence that this thing works and we need like a tighter definition here. And, you know, to identify all these like gaps and then before you just do the thing, each of these gaps or weak parts can become their own spin-off registered report. And so you take each of these and it becomes like a new it becomes a new paper. Well, it can. It's sort of up to you. So for some of them, you can say, uh, do a pilot here and it becomes part of the main thing later on. Or you can say, this is so big, we will do this as a separate paper. But it get, it stays linked to like the, the spine of like your main project that it's sort of branching off of. Um, and each of these, again, is like a registered report to the extent that that makes sense for the thing you want to study. Um, and so each part gets its own space, like the the, t the space and rigor it needs and it can have the reward associated with because you get a publication out of it and but it stays linked to this main thing you want to achieve right and you can sort of add to it you can collaborate with different people on different projects so that might even solve some of the issues we have with like you know who deserves authorship for what and you need an expert on this for this one but maybe not for this one um, and so so it's it's a bit of a like it's a very long shot and so like a um, a dreamy sort of vision. I'm not exactly sure um, if it will work, how it will work. But I think, you know, this mm. was one of the things where I thought maybe, you know, just to acknowledge the, this, the space you need for these things mm. and then having a format where you can actually, that allows you to do it and gives you the reward for it. And then imagine how 
crazy cool the final thing would be and how much weight that would have. That's probably more than a PhD thesis, just one of these things done well, right? Like, I could imagine that being very prestigious. Oof, yeah. That sounds really cool. I mean, I don't know, because I, I, th <laughs> I think the rabbit hole just keeps going down, right? Like, if you... I, you know, like design something I want to test. There's all these assumptions. Okay, now I have, I'm running all these other tests to test those assumptions. There's assumptions in those as well. And so we could test those as well. We could just keep going, right? Like I, at a certain point, I think like, like you said, being aware of the assumptions. And like, I think like competent researchers are aware of their assumptions. Um, a lot of researchers are not, and they will write a paper and they will like honestly believe that they've proved something that they haven't, They haven't proved, but yeah, I think like for me, it's it's more about just being aware of the assumptions involved. Well, if, well, in what if they're you do. saying they've proved anything, they're not competent researchers. Yeah, <laughs> or found support for something. Then I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. the, the, my, my like the short answer would be: so is it better to never test any assumptions? Like that's the yeah. other reductio ad absurdum, yeah. right? The the complement to the reductio ad absurdum that oh, of course there are always more assumptions. Yeah, yeah, there are, and of course we have to draw the line yeah. somewhere, and that's a difficult task. Yeah, to do. no, I think, and I, I agree with what you said before: is like some assumptions are worth testing, some some probably are not. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Cool. Well. Yeah, to, I guess to tie it back in, like, I think what we need more of, like, is just people being thoughtful. I think, I can't remember your speech, but I remember being very inspired by it. And I think the one thing that I took from it is that we need more people to sort of stand up for, like, scientific values and scientific integrity. And sort of, like, I think just thinking about things and being rigorous in that. Because I think at the end of the day, it's really our ideas that we're giving to the world, right? We're saying, this is an idea, here's some evidence for it. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to be thoughtful when we're doing that. So um, I appreciated your paper a lot for what it's worth. I know Paul disagrees, but I loved it. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It was so much fun. Like 85% agrees. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just, the 15% is where the interesting podcast yeah. is. No, no, and all. I totally agree. I totally agree. And it's, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's not like the most comfortable position for me to be in, but of course it's the, the, the valuable one to get the negative um, stuff, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So thank, thank you very much thank for, you for having yeah, me. Yeah, we really yeah. appreciate you coming. We do. We, we hope we haven't added to the stress. <laughs> and yeah, no. hope, thanks. Yeah, hope you have a good weekend. Okay. Yeah, thank you. You too. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye.